It is so good to be with you. Good morning, Fellowship Greenville. Uh, those of you that are with me here in Auditorium One, and welcome to those across the way in Auditorium Two, and those that are in Auditorium Three online, somewhere, someplace, we're glad that you're joining with us. And by the way, if this is your first time to join with us, we're glad that you're tuning in. And one of the things that we want you to know about is if, is if you tune in on a regular basis, you'll find that we are teaching and preaching our way through whole books of the Bible. And we do this for two basic reasons. The first is this. When God chose to reveal himself to us through the written word, he did so in 66 books, in the 66 books that we call our Bible. And so we preach the Bible the way God gave us the Bible, and that is book by book. Secondly, since God gave us his word in book form, we should learn to read the Bible book by book, not just opening it up to some page, plopping your finger down, looking at a verse, trying to find God's word for you for the day and ripping a verse out of context. No, we should read the Bible book by book. And so we teach the Bible the way that we want you to read the Bible so that we can help you read the Bible, and that is book by book. And right now, we're studying our way through the Gospel of John. We're in John chapter 13 again, so take your Bible. Uh, paper or digital, find your way there, and we'll get there in just a minute. We're in Jerusalem. We're in an upstairs room of someone's house where Jesus and his disciples have gathered to share the ritual Passover meal. It is the last Passover meal Jesus will share with these men because this is the night in which Jesus will be betrayed. He'll be arrested. He'll be falsely accused and tried, and tomorrow he will be killed. In our last two messages, we've seen Jesus take the form of a lowly house slave as he's washed his disciples' feet. And, and, and he's teaching us what true greatness in the kingdom of heaven looks like. It is a uh, first shall be last and last shall be first kind of greatness. It is a greatness the greatness of humble service, of not thinking of yourselves as too good or too busy or too important to apply your heart and your hands to the places of great need, no matter how difficult or demeaning those places of service might be. But for those disciples that night, seeing Jesus wash their feet was a hard pill to swallow. It was, it was shocking even repulsive to them because here's Jesus, the long-promised Messiah, the one who's come to set all wrongs right, the one who's supposed to lead a revolution to overthrow the Roman government and set up David's kingdom once again on earth. But here, Jesus shows them a very different picture of the kind of Messiah he is from the one that they had expected. And one of those disciples has come to realize that Jesus would not fulfill his messianic expectations, and he had come to despise him for it. I've entitled the message, A Case Study in Betrayal, because what we're about to read is how Jesus deals with Judas Iscariot, who on this night will betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, which interestingly enough was the price of a common slave. Now here's how I wanna approach this case study. First, I just wanna read the text, read the whole story, then I'm gonna come back and walk through the story, and I'm gonna explain what was happening in the room that night and how Jesus continued to reach out to Judas Iscariot until the very end. 
Second, I want to paint a complete picture of, of Judas to answer the question, and you may have asked this question uh, before. So whatever happened to Judas? Is he in heaven or hell? We're going to look at that. But even more important than that, we need to ask and answer this question. If John wrote what he wrote here about Jesus and Judas and the disciples in order to help us believe that Jesus really is the Messiah and that by believing in his name we would receive and experience eternal life. And that's, that is his purpose. He tells us that in John chapter thir uh, uh, 20 verse 31. If that's the purpose that we would believe, then what are we supposed to take away from this story that will strengthen our faith in Jesus and allow us to experience life with him in a deeper way? So that's the question. That's the approach I'm going to take. Now, here's the context for the story from last week. Jesus has just washed the disciples' feet. He's washed everybody's feet, including Judas' feet. And you'll remember that at first, Peter objected and said, no, Lord, you'll, I'm, you're never going to wash my feet. And Jesus replied, well, if you don't let me wash your feet, then you can't be my disciple. And so Peter says, okay, then wash my feet and, and my head and my hands and everything. And Jesus says, that's not necessary. If you've taken a bath, you're clean and only your feet get dirty. And so only your feet need cleaning. And then he drops the whole conversation to a much deeper level. And he says, uh, uh, he says, you are all clean, but not every one of you. And John, the author says, for Jesus knew who it was that was gonna betray him, and that's why he said, not all of you are clean. Now, then Jesus says, do you know what I've done for you? If you, the Lord and teacher, if I, if I your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, then you're not too good, you're not too important to wash uh, other people's feet, each other's feet. I'm giving you an example that you should do what I have done for you. And then he makes a promise in verse 17. He says, if you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. And it's not enough just to know certain things. You've gotta put them into practice in order to experience the abundant life that Jesus died to make possible. And, and that, that's a whole sermon right there. I mean, but let me just say, there's way too many Christians who spend the bulk of their time reading books and listening to sermons and podcasts in order to know rather than to do. And Jesus says there's no blessing in simply knowing. The blessing comes in the doing. It's like two pedals on a bike, uh, knowing and doing. And you've got to know and do in order to move uh, forward as a disciple of Jesus. So Jesus has made a promise to bless those who give their lives away in service to others, to bless those who know and put what they know into practice. But then he says, this promise doesn't apply to everybody in the room. Verse 18, he says, I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one who sends me, receives me, and whoever receives me, receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. And the disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of the disciples whom Jesus loved, that's John, 
was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan, had in, Satan entered into him, and Jesus said, what, what you're going to do, do quickly. No one at the table knew why he said that to Judas. Some thought because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or maybe he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Case study in Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed the Son of God with a kiss. Judas was a common name uh, from Judah. Uh, Iscariot means that he was from a town called Cariot. Um, he was one, oh, the only one of the 12 uh, who was not a Galilean. He is the most despised traitor in human history. He was wicked and treacherous. He was a thief. Worst of all, Judas spent three years with Jesus, pretty much 24-7, but he never embraced Jesus the way the others did. Jesus loved him, but Judas never returned that love. And when his heart became so hardened to the point of no return, Judas arranged to have Jesus killed. At the beginning of chapter 13 in verse 2, we're told that the devil had already put it into Judas' heart to betray him. And we know that he had already made a bargain uh, to betray Jesus. We already know that the wheels of betrayal are in motion. But there's still time for Judas to repent and to change his mind. Jesus knows this. Verse 11, he knew the one who was going to betray him. He knows the betrayal is in motion. It's present tense. You are all clean, but not all of you, he says. Verse 18, again, I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I've chosen, but the, that the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. And I'm telling you this now so that when it happens, after it happens, you'll know that I am the one that uh, I have claimed to be. So there it is. John wants us to believe that Jesus really is the Messiah and that by believing in him, we would have life in his name. And Jesus says to those men, I'm telling you this now before it takes place. So when it does take place, you'll believe. Now, again, John wrote the story that we would believe, but believe what about Jesus from this story? Well, I, as I take it, John wants us to believe that Jesus laid down his life for us voluntarily. He was not a victim. He was not an unfortunate martyr. Now I want you to think about how important this is. The faith of this, these men is fragile to start with. They're weak in faith, and they're about to be shattered and scattered, right? I mean, Peter's gonna deny Jesus, the rest will desert him, their faith is fragile. So now, to discover that there in their midst, right there in their community group, is, was a, a betrayer, a, a, a traitor, who he had been there all along scheming and plotting to destroy Jesus. Well, that could have destroyed what little faith they had. So Jesus says, I'm telling you this before it happens so you won't be so surprised that you chuck your faith and walk away from me. He wants them to know that he's in control of the whole thing. 
He wants them to know that as strange as all of this is to them, that God's plan is working its way out the way it's supposed to. And look how he makes this abundantly clear. First, he says, I know the ones I've chosen. In other words, I didn't make a mistake choosing Judas. I've chosen every one of you. I know who you are. I know what you are. I know what goes on in your heart. I knew who Judas was from the beginning. Now, when Jesus says, um, I've chosen you, he's not talking here like John Calvin liked to think about this passage in terms of eternal election. No, he's just talking about, Jesus is just talking about how he chose them as his apostles. And uh, we see this clearly in John chapter 6, verse 70, where in the same gospel, Jesus said, did I myself not choose you, the 12, and yet one of you is a devil? And of course, he means Judas. I know the ones I've chosen. I chose you. I chose Judas. I am not a victim. I know the man. I know the purpose. I know the timing. So, and he's telling them this. So after it happens, when you look back on this night, know this. What Judas did did not take me by surprise. It didn't catch me off guard. I knew it was coming all along. Now, second, Jesus also tells them that what's about to happen is going to happen because the scripture must be fulfilled, verse 18, meaning that what Judas does, he does not shock God. What Judas does does not shock God. So when Judas chooses to portray Jesus, he fulfills Psalm 41.9, he who eats my bread has lifted his heel against me. Now, betrayal by someone who has received table hospitality was an especially wicked thing in the ancient Near East. Lifting up your heel against someone referred to publicly insulting someone, turning your back on them and walking away, like walking out on a friend. Jesus chose Judas knowing that he would walk out on him, knowing he would be a traitor, knowing that when Judas chose to betray him, it would fulfill scripture. Listen to what Jesus says at the end of the upper room discourse in John chapter 17, verse 12. Uh, speaking of his disciples, he says, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. And I've guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. And it wasn't just Psalm 41 that pointed uh, forward to Judas. There are other prophetic passages as well, like Psalm 55, verse 12, says, it is not an enemy who insults me, then I could bear it, nor is it one who hates me, who has exalted himself against me, then I could hide myself from him. In other words, if it was an enemy, I could protect myself. But he goes on to say in verse 13, no, it's my companion, my friend, you a man that I've loved, I've gone to worship in the temple and sung with, sung praises to God with. Jesus spent three years of his life with this man. And in verse 20 of, chapter, of uh, Psalm 55, it says, my companion stretched out his hand against his friends. He violated his covenant. His speech was smooth as butter, yet war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. So Judas is pictured in Psalm 55 as a betraying friend. And Judas is also clearly uh, pictured in Zechariah's prophecy. In Zechariah 11, verses 12 through 13, I don't know how much clearer this could be, but just listen to it. 
then I said to them, if it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out as my wages 30 pieces of silver. Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and I threw it into the house of the Lord to the potter. And that's exactly what Judas did. He betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver and then, regretting what he had done, he took the 30 coins and he threw them down on the temple floor and then he went out and hung himself and then the Jewish religious leaders took the money and they purchased a potter's field fulfilling Zechariah's prophecy in detail. So Judas is not a surprise to Jesus. His betrayal did not undermine Jesus' authority. Jesus chose him knowing full well that he would betray him, and what he did did not shock God. It fulfills scripture. And as weird as all this is, Judas was necessary to God's plan. But that doesn't mean that he was fatalistically driven by God to do what he did, or that uh, he didn't have a choice in what he did. No, Judas did what he did because he was a devil not a demon, you understand, but he did what he did because his heart was hard and grew harder and he spiraled down until Satan took total control of his life. He did what he did because he spurned every loving appeal that Jesus made to him along the way. So he was completely responsible for the choice he made. And it's absolutely essential that the disciples know these things so that after they happen, they don't have to rethink everything that they believed about Jesus. And that's why Jesus says in verse 19, I'm telling you this before it happens, so that when it happens, you will believe who I am claimed to be. I don't want you to have any doubts about this. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own accord. Verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me, receives the one who sent me. Now what is that about? I mean, this verse gave me fits right here. I mean, because to me, it's like at first reading, it feels like that John had like this Jesus saying in his mind, and he knew he had to stick it in the gospel somewhere, so he just decided to plop it in right here. No, John didn't just plop it in. This is so very important because Jesus is saying, I'm telling you this ahead of time so you won't chuck your faith and walk away when it happens. And verse 20 is saying, so you'll know that your commission still stands. You find statements like this, whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. You find statements like that in Matthew 10, Mark 9, Luke 9, Luke 10, and this is commissioning language. So why is he saying it now? Because he wants the disciples to know that even with the shocking news that one of their number has been a traitor all along, even with the massive defection, even with this devastating breach of trust, the integrity of the mission is not compromised. The mission still stands. Now I want you to think about that. What is the biggest reason why unchurched people say they have no interest in church because the church is full of hypocrites right like whenever a preacher falls whenever a prominent christian leader scandalizes the church whenever a very committed christian uh, is caught in some public sin then people outside the church love it because they think that that 
uh, justifies their unbelief. But it doesn't. It doesn't justify unbelief because the failure of one does not mean that all Christians are failures or that the whole Christian enterprise is a failure any more than, uh, than the, the bad behavior of a few cops means that all cops are bad and therefore we should do away with the police altogether. That's what Jesus is saying here. He say, he's saying the defection of one doesn't mean the whole thing is, is, is corrupt. The defection of Judas, the betrayal of Judas, doesn't mean that the message of the gospel is suspect or that the mission has been invalidated. It's still true. He says, when someone comes to you in my name, I come to you, and God comes to you. That's the commission. And just because there may be some false, corrupt people in the church, and just because there are Judases along the way, it doesn't invalidate the message or the mission. Verse 21. Now, when he says these things, Jesus is troubled in spirit, and he says, truly, truly, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. Now, these guys did not have any idea what Jesus meant by verses 18 through 20. All of that that I explained to you that makes so much sense, they had not a clue as to what he was saying. They could look back on it and then they would know, but they had not a clue. And so, so uh, Jesus says, one of you will betray. He says it now straight out. One of you will betray me. And he's deeply troubled when he says it. And to my thinking, he's troubled in his spirit because he knows as soon as he says, one of you will betray me. As soon as he says that, he knows the clock starts ticking. Because in just a few more minutes, Judas is going to get up from the table. He's going to leave and he's going to go find the temple guards. And then a few hours later, they're going to come and arrest Jesus in the garden. And Jesus is troubled because he knows that tomorrow he's going to be crucified. Verse 22, the disciples looked at each other, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, and that's John's way of referring to himself, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Peter motioned to him and, and says, ask Jesus who he's talking about. And so that disciple, <clears throat> leaning back on Jesus, says, who is it, Lord? Now, what, what I think is so important right here is that no one in the room, one of you going to be going to betray me. No one in the room said, it's got to be Judas. Judas. Got to be him. I mean, I knew there was something off with him all from the very beginning. I just knew it. No, no, he had blended in so well that no one was suspect. In fact, that on that night, get this. John sits on Jesus' left and Judas is sitting on Jesus' right. That's what they were all arguing about, Luke tells us. Who's gonna be the greatest? Who's gonna sit on the right and left side of, of Jesus? And Judas had managed to put himself in one of the two seats of honor, the right side, the, the real seat of honor. Either that or Jesus had put him there. But regardless, he was there because Jesus allowed it. Now, it's interesting that Peter, the first pope, was not on either side of Jesus. 
uh, he, he was not in, in, in either one of those two seats. Evidently, Peter was seated somewhere else around the U-shaped table that they were sitting around. So evidently, he's not close He's not sitting close to Jesus, so he motions to John to ask Jesus who the betrayer is. So John leans back and says, Lord, who is it? They don't have a clue. Nobody has a clue. Now, this is a private moment between John and Jesus. All right, it's a private, nobody else is gonna hear what he says. So Jesus, verse 26, says, it's the one that I'm gonna give the first bite to. And he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Now, only John, maybe Peter, you know, like if Peter is sitting like over there and, and, and you know, who is it? It's, it's him. Maybe, maybe John went, <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe he pointed him out that way. I, I don't know. But Jesus has just unmasked the traitor. John knows it for sure. The rest don't seem to know what's going on, as we'll see. So what is this about this morsel thing? What just happened? Well, the common meal in those days, there was a large bowl that contained a kind of paste, a kind of mashed up salsa kind of paste that had figs and, and dates and, uh, and raisins in it. It was all mashed together, and they would put in some uh, vinegar and some salt and some herbs, and then they took the, a piece of the unleavened bread, and they would dip it in kind of like a pita-type thing in guacamole or whatever, like chips and salsa, and they would eat that before they ate the Passover lamb. And get this. The custom was that you would give the first piece of bread to the honored guest who was seated next to you. Where's Judas? He's sitting to Jesus' right. He had been allowed to sit in the position as an honored guest, and so our Lord, in a gesture of amazing grace, gives the first bite to Judas. Does that, does that not blow your mind? I mean, it's amazing to me that Jesus washed Judas' feet, but to have him sit next to him as an honored guest in the place of an intimate friend and to treat him like a friend rather than an enemy, I can't get my mind around that. I mean, Jesus reaches out to Judas all the way to the very end. He doesn't give up all the way to the very end. He extends his hand of friendship to a man that he knows has set the wheels of his own betrayal in motion. His grace attempts to reach the treachery of his heart but Judas, sadly, remains unmoved. He accepts the food, but not Jesus' love. He, instead, instead of repenting Judas, he, he, he resists. Listen, at this point, Judas knows that Jesus knows that he is betraying him. And Judas sees and experiences Jesus' amazing grace as, he, as Jesus offers him a way out. But he's made up his mind that he will go through with selling him out. And then hell arrived. Verse 27. Then after Judas had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Now who would know that? Only Jesus would know that. The devil had already put it into the heart of Judas to betray him, and now Satan takes full possession of him to execute his plan. Jesus knows all of this, and he says, 
what you plan to do, go do it quickly. Now you need to understand what's happening here. Jesus is releasing Judas. He does so with a broken heart, with a troubled spirit. Push pause, just stop. There are times when you have to release somebody. You have to let them go. And you don't do this quickly. You don't do it emotionally. You don't do it in anger or malice or bitterness or unforgiveness. You come to the decision slowly and painfully and tearfully. Judas has been with Jesus from the beginning. Jesus has showed Judas his trust. Judas has been the bookkeeper, but for three years, he's been stealing from Jesus. He's got a plan underway to betray Jesus and willingly participate in his murder. And Judas has made up his mind now. And there's no turning back. What you plan to do, do it quickly. And Jesus releases Judas to go and do what he wants to do. And this is where the message gets heavy because it's where life gets heavy. This this is the moment when you look at an unrepentant spouse and you say, I don't want a divorce. This is not what I was hoping for. I'm not giving up. I'm not done trying, but if this is what you want, I release you. This is where you look at that child that you've raised in the Lord, this child you've laughed with and cried with and prayed with, the child you took to church, the child you love with all your heart, and that child's taken a path that's not in line with God's will for their life or what you would hope for their life. And you say, I love you, but what you're doing is not what God wants for you. It's not his will. You're turning your back on God and everything you've been taught, everything that we've taught you. But if this is what you want, I release you. I understand I love you, but I can't make this easy for you. I'm not gonna make it hard, but if you're gonna walk this path, you gotta walk this path alone. But just know if you ever change your mind and you wanna come back, you're welcome, but I release you. Now, if you feel the weight of those words, you know something of how Jesus must have felt that night when he said something very similar to Judas. And if you've ever had to say those words, then you know what Jesus felt like when he let Judas go. Some of you have been there. Some of you are there. Sometimes you have to release someone you love who's walking away from God and you, not out of anger, not out of vengeance, but with tears, with a broken heart, because that person is hell-bent against you and the Lord, to go against you and the Lord, and you release them, and that's what Jesus does to Judas. And then Jesus is, he's got other things he needs to say to those disciples. He wants Judas gone at this point Judas has completely given himself over to the devil's influence. He needs to go because in the next couple of hours, Jesus is gonna make some incredible promises to these disciples, promises that start in this chapter in verse 31 and go all the way through chapter 17. And Jesus has, in these next couple of hours, 
Jesus has much to teach these men about how they will live as his disciples after he's gone, and this is Jesus' last opportunity to equip them for what lies ahead. And all of this is going on in Jesus' mind. Everything that, he's, uh, that, he's got, that has happened and what's just happened and what's going to happen, it's all in his mind. The rest of the guys in the room are clueless. Verse 28, he says, no one at the table understood why he said go and do what you have to do quickly. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag that Jesus was saying go buy some food for the feast tomorrow, like a feast of unleavened bread, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, Judas immediately went out and it was night. And it was night. It was night in more ways than just the sun had set and it was dark outside. No, in the, all through the gospel, John, when he uses the terms light and dark, he has a, he uses those terms in a metaphorical sense. It was night for Judas because this would be his last night on earth. In less than 12 hours, he would be dead, having hung himself out of the, under the weight of a tremendous guilt. And then it's, it's night for Jesus because the light of the world has been betrayed because by the dawning of the next day, Jesus' trial will be over. And not long after, Jesus will be crucified and the whole land will be covered in darkness, it was night, and the clock is ticking. Now that's the story. What about Judas? Well, clearly one of the most tragic stories in all of human history. Think about the opportunities this man had. He was handpicked by Jesus to be an apostle. He spent three and a half years traveling the whole land of Israel with Jesus and the other disciples. He was eyewitness to all the miracles of Christ. He heard all the amazing sermons that Jesus preached and he had the privilege of being in Jesus' community group where he could hit, ask Jesus questions about what he had taught and Jesus privately explained the meaning of, his, of, of what he had been teaching to, this, to these men. Ju, Judas was one of them. He watched Jesus heal the sick cast out demons and raised the dead. And he was sent out with the other disciples to preach the gospel and heal the sick and cast out demons. And we have no reason to believe that he did not do those things. You're, Charlie, you're saying that Judas cast out demons? That's exactly what I'm saying. He was one of the leaders of the apostles. They trusted him with the money. I mean, you don't, you don't give the money back to someone you don't trust. So in terms of his experience, pretty much whatever you can say about Peter and James and John, you can say about Judas. Everywhere they went, he went. He was right there by Jesus' side 24-7. He heard it all, saw it all, and experienced it all. And to me, the most interesting part of this story is that the other apostles only saw the positive side of Judas. It wasn't until they looked back later that they could see the negatives. But sitting at the table that night, he looked as good as any of the rest of them, probably even better, and that's why no one expected or suspected him. But he was not as he appeared. And John has let us know this all along. In John chapter 6, verse 64, Jesus said, there are some 
of you who do not believe. And then John adds the commentary here. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. Verse 70, Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the 12, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the 12, was going to betray him. Now I want you to think about that. Judas heard Jesus say that. One of you is a devil. Judas knew that Jesus knew what was going on in his heart. And he was so hardened that he did not change. Now later on, John gives us a peek into Judas' heart. In John chapter 12, we read about Mary's beautiful display of worship as she takes this very expensive perfume, pours it on Jesus' feet and washes his feet with her hair. And here's how John uh, shows us uh, what Judas' true colors are in John 12, verse four. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And John says he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. That means that when he was watching Jesus work miracles, he was stealing. When he heard Jesus preaching these sermons, he was helping himself to the ministry fund. Clearly, Judas was not the man the disciples thought he was, and that's why they didn't suspect him as a traitor. But Jesus knew all along what was in Judas' heart. So why did Judas betray Jesus? Well, people have been trying to figure that out from the very beginning. I mean, did he do it because he was disillusioned? I mean, that's the most popular theory, that Judas expected Jesus to lead an uprising against Rome. And when he found out that Jesus had no such uh, desire to do that, he had uh, no intention to do that, he became angry with Jesus and betrayed him. Or by betraying him, maybe Judas thought that he could force Jesus to do something to save himself, which would start a revolution and uh, Judas would get his hopes and dreams fulfilled maybe that way. Was that what happened? Well, maybe, but the text doesn't say anything about that. Not one hint about that in the text. Okay, so did he do it for money? Well, in view of what I've already said about Judas stealing from the ministry fund and objecting to Mary's waste of uh, wasting such an expensive gift on Jesus, this reason at least seems to be supported by the scripture. But 30 pieces of silver is just not that much money. So it, why would he sell Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver when he could have gotten so much more? You see, it, 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 we're not sure what motivated Judas, but we are sure that whatever was in his heart his heart was set on some kind of selfish gain that kept him from giving himself completely to Jesus. So that brings up the last question. Okay, so where is Judas? Is he in heaven or hell? I mean, didn't he repent in the end? Okay, let's just start there. Yes, uh, the old King James uh, translates Matthew 27, 3, that Judas repented but that is not the Greek word for repent. The typical, usual Greek word for repent is metanao, the typical word. But this is a word that simply means remorse. So in other words, he regretted what he had done. Maybe he saw them trying Jesus and beating him up and he felt bad about it when it finally hit him and he felt really, 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 really bad. 
but he didn't repent because to repent is not just to feel bad about something, it's to confess what you've done is wrong and then seek to make it right. And had Judas really repented, he would have found a way to get to Jesus, even if it meant that he would stand at the foot of the cross and ask Jesus to forgive him. And had he truly repented, the amazing grace of Jesus would have covered even his great sin of betrayal. Because really, all of our sins are are betrayals, aren't they? I mean, sometimes we trade faithfulness to God for what we think is something more important, like money or more stuff or job security or compromise in a shady business deal or going against your conscience by giving in to someone that you think by going along, they'll love you more if you just give in. We trade faithfulness to God sometimes for what we think will give us life and turn our back on Jesus who offers us life. That's betrayal. Or what about when God disappoints you, when God lets you down, when God doesn't do what you think that he should have done and your dreams are shattered or your hopes are dashed or maybe you prayed and prayed and prayed for someone to be healed and they weren't healed and and you feel like God didn't live up to his end of the bargain, that God cheated you. I mean, does your disappointment disappointment with God tempt you to betray Jesus and just chuck your faith and walk away. You see, not, not a single one of us is beyond following in Judas' footsteps. And in a very real sense, every time we sin, we betray the love of Jesus. Now, Judas didn't repent. There's three scriptures that seem to bear this out. The first one I've mentioned already, John 17, 12. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I've guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. Jesus describes Judas as lost. He describes him as the son of destruction. It's hard for me to make that square with the fact that Judas repented and now he's enjoying the glory of heaven. Matthew 26, 24, the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man had he never been born. Again, it's hard for me to see how Jesus is, could say it would be better that for Judas had he not ever been born how that could possibly mean he was just simply misguided and, and one day we'll see him when we get to heaven. Acts one twenty five, the apostles are in an upper room and they're praying about um, asking God to show them which of the, these two men they're gonna put in Judas' place as the 12th apostle And they prayed and said, you, Lord, know the hearts of all. Show us which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And most commentators see that place as hell. But you said, Charlie, that Judas worked miracles, preached the gospel, cast out demons. How could he do that and not be a real Believer, well, he could do that based on what Jesus says in John chapter seven, verse 21 and 22. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, 
Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So it seems to me that Jesus answers that question. Look, I don't take any pleasure in talking about Judas like this. It's the most tragic story in human history. I, I take no pleasure in it, but we have, to, we have to let the text tell us the dire consequences of a man who lived in the presence of Jesus with a hard heart, and he eventually ignored all the loving appeals of Jesus and betrayed him and was a willing participant in his death. But what's more important than all of that is what about us? Remember, John wrote this story into his gospel because he wants us to see that Jesus really is the, 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 the Savior that he claimed to be, and that by believing in him, we would receive and experience life in his name. So again, what are we supposed to take away from this story that strengthens our faith and deepens our experience with Christ? That's, the, that's what we really need to know. Two things, two things. First of all, this case study in betrayal is also a case study in grace. This case study of betrayal is a case study of grace. Jesus knew from the beginning who it was that would betray him. Jesus knew all along what was in Judas' heart. He knew that he was stealing money from the ministry fund, but he knew that he, the wheels of betrayal were in motion, but Jesus treated Judas with the same love and care as he did all the others. He loved Judas all the way to the end. He washed his feet. He seated him at the table in the seat of honor next to him. And he honored him and reached out in grace to him by giving him the first bite. All of these are acts of grace in the face of betrayal. Jesus never responded to Judas in kind. That is, he never treated Judas the way Judas treated him. He never had a heart towards Judas like the heart Judas had toward him, and that truly is amazing grace. And what that means for you and what that means for me is that his grace truly is greater than all of our sin. His grace continues to reach out to us even when we try to push him away. Even when our hearts are far away, he stands there in grace to welcome us back. His grace perseveres with us because he is faithful even when we are faithless. And so no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, you are never beyond the reach of God's grace. You simply have to acknowledge that you need it and put your faith in Jesus to receive it. Second, this case study in betrayal is also a case study in the sovereignty of God. Jesus tells his disciples that he's telling them he'll be betrayed before it happens so their faith won't be shaken when it happens. So, John 20, 31, at the end of the book, I write these things so you'll believe, connects directly to John 13, 19, where Jesus says, I'm telling you these things so you'll believe. And Jesus tells us things about our future as his disciples as well. And he actually goes on in the upper room discourse to lay these things out. In John chapter 15, 
verses 18 through 20, he tells us, us that, that there will be people in this world who do not know God, who've rejected him, and they will hate us the way they hated him. They will persecute us because we identify ourselves as Christians. He echoes exactly what he said here in chapter 16, verse 1. He says, I'm telling you these things to keep you from falling away. And so, and so uh, he's saying, you will encounter people who hate you because they hated me. I'm telling you this, he says, I want you to know what to expect so that you're not so surprised and shocked by it that you fall away. He says in chapter 16, verse 33, I've said these things to, to you so that in me you have peace. In this world you have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Is there tribulation in our world today? Absolutely. Is there tribulation in your world today? My Bible tells me that things will get worse before Jesus comes back. Jesus told you these things in his word ahead of time so that you and I would know what to expect so that we would not be surprised or shocked when they start to happen so that we have confidence that Jesus is directing the course of human history. He is over everything from galaxies to government and it's all going according to the sovereign plan of God. How are you gonna be if your candidate doesn't get elected? How are you gonna make sense out of that if your candidate doesn't get elected in November? You better run it through the filter that God's in control of everything. You better run it through the filter that God is in sovereign control of what's going on in our world today, in our country today. It's all going according to the sovereign plan of God. Doesn't mean you don't, you don't mean you have to like it. But you better rest in the fact that it's all going according to the sovereign plan of God. So, yes, this study is a this story is a case study in betrayal, but it's much more than that, isn't it? It's a case study in grace. It's a case study in the long-suffering grace of Jesus, and it's a case study in the confidence-building sovereignty of God. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that you gave us your written word so that we know who you are and what you've done for us in Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, that you went to the cross to pay for our sins, to pay for all of our betrayals. Thank you for your amazing grace and thank you and we praise you because you are worthy to receive all honor and glory and praise for you are in control of everything that happens in this world. To God be the glory in Jesus' name, amen.